Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome to Globe Chung. Globe Chung is a Uniglo podcast in collaboration with Next Step and Michael Waits Media. Uniglo is Thailand's first student-run organization to provide university application and other insights through events and its online platform. And Next Step is an advanced experiential learning organization based in Asia, providing internships, study abroad programs, and learning expeditions for high school and graduate students and corporates. The Globe Chung podcast features stories of accomplished and inspiring Southeast Asian high school graduates, that, that's you, Lila, that are now in colleges and universities <laughs> across the globe. And on this episode, I am joined by Lila Sang, a second-year student at Royal Holloway at the University of London. Did I get your name right? Yes, you did. Well How done. Are you? <laughs> well done. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I am super, and I'm just happy that you shortened your name to make my life easier. Um, so where are you now? Are you back in London, or are you still in Bangkok? Yeah, so actually my university lies, and I'm not in London. I'm actually just outside in a little town called Egham, which has like a Tesco and a bunch of charity shops, and that's about it. <laughs> that's about it. Yeah, um, it's actually a half an hour train ride into London, which isn't too bad. It's kind of nice to have the distance. Yeah, that's kind of nice. I was in a suburb when I went to college as well, and it wasn't that bad, actually. Yeah, it's it's nice because it's so close. And if I do need a break from this kind of greenery out here, I can just go into the city if I need to. And it's not too hectic or too expensive like it is in London. So, 30 minutes away is, yeah, that kind of is the best of both worlds. So when did you leave? You were in Bangkok for a little bit of time, right? Yes, I was in Bangkok till I was 15. I was born there and kind of went through Bangkok Patna until I was 15. And then I moved over here to boarding school to Tring Park, which was a performing arts school because I wanted to pursue musical theater. So did you did you leave Patna because you wanted to go specifically to a school for the performing arts? Or did you want to go to boarding school yeah, regardless? Yeah, that's correct. You did. No, um, being an only child, my mum did not want me to go to boarding school. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it was kind of the only option because I did want to pursue performing arts at the time. But so at 15, what was it like? you know, convincing your parents that you could go away, first of all, and then go away to study performing arts, which not every kid does, right? Yeah, no, um, gosh, it was, you know, fortunately, my parents were very, very, very supportive of what I wanted to do. I'd always kind of done a lot of musical theater in Patna and outside in little kind of like, you know, summer camps and things around Bangkok. So I think at the same time, my mom just kind of wanted me to go out and experience outside of the little Bangkok bubble, you know, she, she herself is British. So she wanted me to have a bit of, you know, a little bit of a taste of what it is like to live here. So, um, it wasn't too hard to convince them, but it was, it was difficult for both of us. I mean, um, massive culture shock, but yeah. 15 seems young, male or female, right? To just go away. And, oh, yeah. and go away, you know, across the globe, but also go away to a completely different country and culture, right? Yeah, completely. Because before that, I'd only been to England a handful of times, and that was to visit family. So I'd never even been to London and stuff like that. But it was um, daunting, exciting. <laughs> it was like a shock to the senses. But yeah, it's just so different because there's there's so much here where, you know, I had to 
like tell my friends to go in front of me, like to use a bus. I'd like never stepped on a bus in my life. Right. Um, everything was self-service. And obviously we know in Bangkok, nothing is self-service. self-service right. <laughs> yeah. So I was, I was, you know, kind of thrown in in the deep end. And it was also another place like where I am now. It was in a little town called Tring, you know, which no one's ever heard of. And there were literally like cows behind our uni, no concrete anywhere. It was the complete opposite of Bangkok. Where did you live in Bangkok before you went to Tring? Oh, I lived in Ekamai. Oh my God. Okay. So I live in Ekamai. Yeah. So I know what it's like. <laughs> it's like right in the middle of the city. And like you said, plenty of concrete, plenty of cars, plenty of buses, plenty of noise, but nothing like cows for sure. Yeah, precisely. Were the, were the other students at Tring international students as well? Or were they mostly from around that area or from the UK? all really from the UK. I was the only like kind of international per se student. I was the only one from Thailand anyway. For sure. So that was kind of daunting because, you know, you, you're Thai, everyone thinks you're from Taiwan. Right. You get the classic elephant stuff. Really? It was a very small, <laughs> um, very, very small um, community entering. What I'm really curious about, right, is and, and I'll give you some context for this. And I may have mentioned this to you when we were standing around talking at the coffee shop, but when I was when I was nineteen I went to Japan to do study abroad when I was in college. And one of the things that I noticed, you know, and I was in a big city in, in, in Kyoto, right? But one of the things that I noticed was I stood out. You know, I was just this Caucasian person in the midst of a whole bunch of Japanese people and I'd mm -hmm. never experienced that before. And that for me was probably the biggest shock, just the fact that People looked at me, not because I was anything yeah. spectacular, but just because I was really different. But in Bangkok, you would kind of blend in, you know what I mean? And particularly uh, at yeah, just walking around Ekamai, nobody would, you know what I mean? But was that different in a small town in the UK? Um, definitely, and especially kind of at the boarding school. I mean, there was one other girl um, and who, who happened to become my best friend. Um, she was from Japan, but she was kind of born and raised in Manchester. So she'd oh, been right. in England her whole life. But um, obviously, being the only two Asians in the year, we'd get mixed up. Yeah. And we look nothing alike. <laughs> no, nothing. But that's so, so interesting, I would be right? signed in as Shoko for lunch, and she would get signed in for me. And, like, it would just, it was baffling, completely baffling. But it happens. And, yeah, it's completely different because, obviously, you look different. You're not from the country. So a lot of the colloquialisms and, like, the kind of phrases that everyone used, it took me a while to get used to it and even just general kind of not etiquette but like in Bangkok you never cross a road you know you rarely cross a road right. and here the zebra crossings actually work um yeah. which was something that I had to learn the hard way yeah so one of the things that I learned in London the first time that I was there and tell me if this is still true in the UK but if you step off the curb into the road the cars will stop like, that's the etiquette on the road. Whereas, like, in New York, the cars see you, they'll hit you, you know what I mean? Like, they won't stop. And in Bangkok, they don't even notice. Do you know what I mean? There's no notion yes, exactly. of cars stopping for humans. But, in other words, it was considered, in a way, rude to get off the curb in London because then everybody had to stop for you, even if it wasn't appropriate. Does that make sense? And it's little things like that that you don't know, right? No, completely. It's it's com it's a completely different world, but it, it did take a few weeks for me to get used to it. And, you know, it wasn't just 
kind of the little things around England, but it was the whole culture as well. Because obviously I'd came from Bangkok, Patna, which is obviously a beautiful school yeah. and yeah. everyone's very hardworking. You're, you're just surrounded by this abundance of kind of like overachievers. Everyone is like, you know, international kids in Bangkok. Right. This little town in Tring and there were like 40 people in my year group, which was absolutely tiny compared right. to Patna, which is like 180 or whatever. Right. Um, and you know the classroom etiquette was completely different. You know, oh, how was it different between what was in Patna and what was a Tring? Well, in Patna, no one would ever dream of talking back to a teacher. Oh my god! And I know I came here and it's this little school in England, and you know there, you know it's like talking back to the teacher is just a regular thing. You know, yeah, at first I came and I was quite shocked. It was like quite rude almost um as someone that had been you know this little bubble in Bangkok Patna um but that was quite shocking and it took me a while to get used to but after that you just kind of get on with it cause what more can you do there are those troublemakers yeah so you were trained for what for two years two school years yeah Yes, actually. Oh, really? So, did you come home? I did first... my GCSE. Ah, right, right, right. So, did you come home for summers or for breaks? Oh, yeah, I came home every summer and every break. So, did you have? And and a lot of people don't understand this concept, but did you have reverse culture shock when you got back? Do you know? Oh my you... gosh, I've been through it a million times. Tell me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so going to the UK is like, you know, your eyes are wide open and then I'd come home and I'd be like, God, Bangkok is so ugly. <laughs> and, you know, it's just like nothing makes sense that there are no rules on the road. You know, yeah. it's just all so hectic and chaotic. And then I would go back to England and I would love it. And I did go through this period where I just was like, God, I really hate Bangkok yeah but it wasn't until recently where I kind of actually had my eyes opened again to Bangkok and I was like you know what it's actually such an incredible hub Pretty amazing you know it's growing by the second every time I come home there's some new building that's just popped up it's kind of like it's not a love-hate relationship but I think I finally kind of come to terms with Bangkok again right. and loving it and embraced it for what it is. So when you left Bangkok to go to school, you said you were 15 years old, right? And how yes. old are you now? How old are you now? I'm 20. Wow. That's the the differences between 15 and 20, you know, it's, it seems like 5 years, but that's like 20 25% of your life, right? One four, no, yeah. one fourth, Oh my right? god. It's a lot. Oh my god. But if you think about it yeah. from the perspective of like your adult kind of life, it's actually most of your life as a sort of sentient adult has been lived now in the UK, if you think about it, right? And that's weird to a certain extent. That's but crazy. You, I've never crazy, thought right? of that. You've just blown my mind. <laughs> <laughs> right? But, but when you look back now at the 15-year-old girl that left and you think about you know how you felt about Bangkok when you first went back and then now you f how you feel about just like life in general, what do you think that learning tells you about, you know, what you think you think and what you now know you know, if that makes any sense. Gosh. You know what I mean? Because, you know what I mean? Yeah, I you're like, I hate Bangkok and stuff. And then you take a little bit of time to think about it. And you're like, you know what? Maybe no place is actually that bad. And every place is just different kind of thing. 
Yeah, definitely. It's it's crazy because, you know, obviously in the moment you think you know everything. Of course. And that that thought is just like you're you're not kind of willing to budge until maybe hindsight right. and perspective really gives you that edge because yeah, like I was I went to the UK to study musical theatre and now I'm at a university studying digital media, you know. And when <laughs> I went when I was 15, there was no no budging and I wanted to be on the West End or on Broadway and right. that was it. And I was going to do that. That was my dream. I didn't care if the pay was bad. I didn't care about the lifestyle. Um, I was you know, willing to do that because it was my passion and my love. Right. And then, you know, three years later, I, I was there saying, actually, you know, I actually want to go to university and get a degree. And it just time completely changes everything and perspective really does as well. Yeah. And I, I think for me, the thought is always, if I've learned that in the past three years, or if I've learned, you know, X in the past five years, what I'm, what's going to change over the next five years that I don't expect, right? And that's kind of the way I look at life going forward is, you know, I thought I was, <laughs> I thought I was brilliant at 20. <laughs> I thought I was kind of <laughs> smart at 30. And now I just feel like I need to learn more yeah. stuff at 50. Do you know what I mean? It's weird, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I don't know. So what do you think changed that made you say, I want to go to university as opposed to sort of dedicating yourself to the performing arts? Like, do you remember the moment where you're like, oh, I think I'm just going to go to college? Oh, yeah, it was horrifying. I, <laughs> I literally genuinely woke, I woke up one morning and I was like, oh, my God, is my dream actually my dream? And it was like this whole existential thing. But um, it was it was a hard decision because obviously I put so much hard work into you know, getting into this school, I even got like a scholarship in sixth form for musical theatre. And when I was at home, I was preparing um, to go to this school by doing 11 hours of ballet a week, you know. So it was, you know, a very intense process, singing lessons, dancing lessons, acting lessons. But then I kind of stepped back and looked at the bigger picture and the lifestyle. And, you know, it's a really awful life of unemployment until you get your break. Um, I don't know if I was willing to put myself through that. And even if I, I am in the future, I'm, I'd rather do it with a degree to fall back on yeah. than nothing, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense to me. But it's really interesting that, you know, as a 17-year-old, you kind of figured that out or 18, depending on how mm -hmm. old you were when you thought about it, right? But it's like you wake up one day and you're thinking, okay, that was my dream, but maybe not. And if it's not, I better hightail it into something else that's going to be slightly more stable i think it's a normal thought yeah. process actually but here's the other question if you had stayed at bps right so if you'd stayed at patina mm -hmm. there was an entire infrastructure there built by the school and you know frankly the other international schools in in bangkok that help you get into university right so there's counselors there's Definitely. test prep there's all mm -hmm. that stuff how did you go through that process on your own at tring Oh, it was hard. Um, they, was was I it mean, set up to do that or my, not really? Really, really not. Because <laughs> <laughs> everyone was, you know, going to further training into drama school. Right. Um, rather than, you know, going to university. So it was, it was quite difficult. You know, I actually came home in my upper sixth year so that is the yep. senior year mm -hmm. um I actually came home to to do homeschooling and get like tuition just for my a-levels 
oh, so wow. that I was prepared enough to go to university because um, the way the days worked at Turing were that, um, you know, all of the mornings were dedicated to academics and all of the evenings until half six were vocate, um, dedicated to vocational studies. Um, and then, you know, by that time you're exhausted because you've just been doing six hours of singing, dancing and drama, yeah. you know, you know, there's, there's not really enough time to really knuckle down for your academic studies and yeah of course people have done it but I just realized you know maybe that's that's not for me and if I take this time out now I'm not gonna regret it and you know it did really help and I did um get in touch with a few university counselors like over Skype and things like that because I was back in Thailand for that year um so it gave me time what was that conversation like with your parents when you called them or you just told them, look, I'm coming home. I want to talk to you about this thing because I think I need to go to university. I mean, it sounds to me like your parents are pretty progressive and supportive, but were you embarrassed is the wrong word, but were you concerned about it? Or were you just like, I know my parents love me and they're just going to help me out and it was easy or like, what was that like? Yeah. Um, my mom was ecstatic because she was like, yeah, maybe he's coming home. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> Um, you know, it was, I kind of, it was a little bit embarrassing because, you know, I'd built myself up to be doing this and then suddenly it was like, I don't want to do it anymore. And it's, it's not embarrassing in the sense that, you know, people are going to laugh and stuff, but you know, everything you do is kind of not like unintentionally broadcasted today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll see I'm back in Bangkok and they'll think, oh, that's funny. Like, I thought she wanted to do this or I thought she wanted to do that. And you don't know what people are going to say. But, um, you know, I think I definitely made the right decision. It was the right time to leave. And without that year, I wouldn't be where I am today. And I'm so happy where I am today. Do you think it helps you going forward knowing now that decisions are not set in stone? Do you know what I mean? So that the next time you make a decision and you change your mind, you're like, you know what? life is just a series of like mind changing decisions and it's okay. Completely. Right. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I like to say that it's really good to go through adversity really early on in life because if you can kind of cross that bridge and get past it, it means that later on, you know, when you're 30, 40, 50 and you, you encounter adversity, which you ultimately will. Yeah. You'll be able to get past it because you've done it when you were 20 or 17. Right. Yeah, I complete. I completely agree with that. There's so much that you can just, you know, experience. I would rather go through adversity now than later on in my life. And of course, I'm going to go through adversity later on. But now I have almost, you know, better coping mechanisms sure. and perspective because, you know, you've been through something really difficult and you've come out the other end and now you can look at it in hindsight. And that's so important. It's so important. You've built like a tool set, right? maybe unknowingly about how to deal with that adversity and that's just so handy later on in life i guarantee you that yeah definitely yeah and i like i like the way you said your mom said my baby's coming home parenting is this really tricky thing right where you want to always tell your kids the right thing to do but a really great parent will let their children go out and fails the wrong word but you know just figure out on their own what the right path is and that's, you know, yeah, and right and wrong. It doesn't really matter. But just figure out their own path. And it's scary for your parents to kind of let you go, right? Like, and when you come back and you're okay, it's actually really powerful. Yeah. It makes everybody feel better and like more in love in a way. 
Oh, definitely. My mum and I talk about this a lot, and she is so thankful that she let me go to train when yeah. I did. Yeah. You know, experience what I did and get that, you know, taste of English life and also yeah. kind of make me realize for myself is this what I want to do? Is it not right. what I want to do? Is it better off as a hobby? And yeah. Yeah, I think one of the things that most parents miss is that at some point their children are going to go away and experiment. And it's going to go the way it's going to go, regardless of what the parents do or say. And you may as well let them do it again early on, right? Because if they if something goes horribly wrong, they will come back and say it went horribly wrong. Not that it did for you, but if it if it had, you can then always go home. But if you wait until later, you may never get that support again. It's just I'm I'm so happy when I hear parents do that for 15-year-olds or 14-year-olds. Yeah. Like I said, you learned, right? Definitely. I learned so many incredible lessons and that I can just carry through until today and the rest of my life. So I'm just like so thankful that, you know, my mom and my dad were very supportive. Do people tell you when they meet you that they think you're more mature than your age? Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. Or all the, sometimes or all the time. <laughs> Not all the time, sometimes. I guess. I mean, look, all of us have a silly side to us, right? But I just, when I listen to you talk, I just, you sound so mature. And I was thinking about that actually when we met in person too, that if I had just heard your voice and your conversation, I would never have been able to guess how old you are. That's a compliment, right? Oh, thank you so much. That's yeah. really kind. But I was thinking about asking you because even when, you know, there are some people who go through life as kind of, what I would call old souls and no matter how old they are they just seem so sort of stable and mature and that's kind of what it seems like you are but maybe that's just oh, my, my impression thank you <laughs> thank you so now that you're at school and I remember you told me you were studying math and physics when you were in high school is that right or for your a-levels I'm trying to remember that's right I picked um maths physics chemistry for my a-levels good for you <laughs> was it <laughs> yeah don't you think was it hard it was very difficult, you know, and, you know, being in a performing arts school, that's, those are not gay levels that people tend to take. I was one of three in my physics class. Exactly. Um, so that's why I was so happy. And, you know, that was, that was nice. And it was definitely something that I needed to do because I, I love physics generally. And that it was something that I thought I would be pursuing at university at one time. So, right. I mean, we, we, spe we speak about these decisions that we make and how it mm -hmm, completely mm -hmm. changes. I went from musical theater to physics to, to business to, to this now. And it's just like, you really have no idea what life is going to throw at you. You don't, but I think it's really neat, right? So if you studied math and physics and, and chemistry, was that the third one you said? Yeah. Like they can't take that away from you now. Do you know what I mean? Like you've done it, you did your yeah, levels definitely. there, and you have that forever. And then no matter what you, because there's always this question, right? There's always this deep question of, you know, how hardworking or how smart is somebody? And you've already proven, like I can do all that stuff. And then kind of everything you do after that is built on that base. That's pretty amazing, I think. Yeah, it was. It was a great learning experience, definitely. And I'm really glad that I did it. I don't regret picking those subjects at all. So now, what are you studying now in school, and how did this happen? Yeah, so now I study digital media, culture, and technology, which is a very, like, no one's ever heard of the course. It's, um, even within my university, people ask me what I study, and I say digital media. They go, I did not know that was a degree. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's it's a very small one. I think my my year is the third year that it's been running so cool. it's 
still relatively new, but it's it's been pretty exciting so far. My first year we did, you know, an introduction to like programming. So we did like Java and Python and used this um, application called Processing to, um, you know, create video games, which was very exciting. And then on the other hand, we did things like digital media theory. So all of the kind of theory behind the algorithms and networking on the internet um, and just in general and a lot of film stuff as well. So film TV and digital histories we did last year. So it's, it's a very broad subject. It's all to do with kind of everything current, which is really exciting. Do you get the sense that you've actually combined your math, physics, and chemistry with your love for the performing arts and then combined it into this digital media culture and technology major? Do you know what I mean? It almost seems like purpose-built for you. Had you, you thought about that? You keep blowing my mind, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> but have you thought about that? Because yeah. it's both. No. Yeah, it is. It really is. That's, yeah. Am I wrong? Wow. I mean, tell me I'm wrong. I've been wrong before a lot. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. But honestly, it's, it's a it's a great degree. We get to do so much from like learning how about digital marketing and live reporting, which is awesome because then you kind of doing this. We had a live reporting project, and you know you had to that? be able that? to report. So Sorry. it was um, essentially a project where we had to go to a, an event, an actual event, and live report it on at least two social media platforms. Cool. So. Um, and do like a minimum of 25 posts or something. So, you know, you have to have these kind of creative skills in order yeah. to make something out of that. Otherwise, you know, you just turn on a live stream on Facebook and that's it. But no, you've got to have something that, you know, will capture an audience, um, will keep the audience. And, you know, there's there are so many variables to it that you've got to think about. But definitely having that, you know, background in performing arts really helps. Yeah, what was what was the event that you went to and which platforms did you actually do it on? So I chose to do it on, what did I do? I did it on Instagram, Facebook, and I did a little bit on Twitter as well, just because those are the main social media platforms that I used for this, because I um, went to the, it was a musical theater society show on campus. Okay. Um, and I play a big part in the musical theater society as well because I'm their publicity officer so I run their social media platforms so I took this I took this project as like a you know I could do this for the society but at the same time it's for my project so I kind of killed two birds and one stone um and went to kind of live report it so I put some live videos up here and there I was kind of tweeting throughout the day what kind of planning went into it I think a lot of people look at television and live performing arts and feel like it's just all ad-libbed or ad hoc when a lot of it is what I'll call it's not scripted but it's definitely outlined right oh definitely and there's you know a lot of prep goes into rehearsing for shows like that so um um, the planning behind my social media was pretty simple because I kind of fortunately knew how the day was gonna lie out because I was you know live reporting it as the host of the event essentially right. because I was using the musical theater society's platforms already in place to do so right. I wasn't just going to you know an event as myself I was promoting it as the society got it so you have to kind of look at it from 
point of view rather than, you know, turning up to an event. So one of my other friends, you know, went to an actual climate change march in London and, you know, live reported that. So you could really have done anything. What does it look like your coursework is going to be over the next couple of years? And what do you think you're going to not just get out of it, but what do you think you're going to take away from this and sort of build into your career if, if you think you're going to continue doing stuff in the digital media space? Yeah, there are so, so many things that digital media kind of opens your mind to from digital yeah. marketing, which I'm very, very, very interested in. And, you know, we, we had a project last term where we got given a budget to create a campaign and, you know, boost it on Facebook using ads. So I've had experience doing that. And it's very, very interesting because you can really fine tune what audience that you pick. And it's almost unethical. Can you tell me, can you tell me more about that? Because I've I think I know about it. Like I read about it, but I've never actually done a campaign. Can you just give me a little insight? Yeah. So we um, we created a campaign which was like a um, anti homophobic hate speech campaign, and we created a music video and we put it up. And before we put up the music video, we put up a lot of like interviews with some of the dancers that we used and stuff like that, all kind of like raising awareness about. Um, hate speech and especially specifically in like LGBT societies so um, we got given like just over 700 pounds to boost it all over Facebook and Instagram and you know you could really choose like which areas if like you put in tags as to which what things that people like like on Facebook and it will target those specific people um, whether you want more female or more male, which age groups that you want to target. Um, and it was quite crazy because we got over 70,000 people, I think, in reach of our music video itself. So not the page alone, which was more. Um, but yeah, that was pretty mind blowing for a small kind of university project. Yeah, now it's my turn to say you've blown my mind, right? <laughs> you know this. You know the space in which I operate, and yeah, just getting seventy thousand people to interact with something on a budget of seven hundred pounds is pretty amazing. I think it's it tells you know two things. One is just how much how much work you and your team of people actually did to figure out how all that works, right? How the ad targeting and you know the SEO mm. and the SEM stuff works, but also just how powerful these platforms are. I don't think most people understand, and you, I think you really have to get down in the weeds, like you've done to understand how much power is actually in them, yeah? Oh, completely. There's so much power in so many forms of digital media. You know, even recently, I developed this interest in video games, and I myself have never been a video gamer. Right. I've never really played anything, maybe like Club Penguin when I was like 12. But, <laughs> right. you know, I was <laughs> not, not a gamer. So I've just developed this insane interest because I did a course called um, Digital Aesthetics and Software Politics. Okay. which I found so incredibly interesting because there are so many kind of things from something called platform capitalism to like, you know, the empathy machines that could be video games, you know, yeah. in the future yeah. and how much, like what impact video games actually have on people's mind. And if they were done the right way, I think that video games would be absolutely incredible ways of learning of because they provide such a safe space for someone to experience such a complex situation and it gives you all of these you know 
it gives you the chance to practice your critical thinking. It gives you the chance to fail and fail again until you manage to succeed. I think video games could be very, very, very important in our future. Yeah, so I did a podcast a year or so ago with the guy who runs the global HTC VR business, right? The virtual reality business. And I did some research before I went into that conversation, mostly focused on gaming because I thought that was what he wanted to talk about. And I was wrong. Like I said, I've been wrong before. I'll yeah. be wrong again. But what he wanted to talk about was the power of virtual reality and gaming in relation to education. And he actually told yeah. me a really interesting story about how Vive, so HTC Vive, was doing some research in Western remote China. And they would take two groups of kids, one that were considered really smart and were performing at the top of the class. And they'd continue to teach them in a normal way. And then the kids who were underperforming, and they'd give them immersive virtual reality learning tools and he said by the end of the course the second group of kids who were considered not so smart and hard to teach ended up outperforming the kids who were considered better students and brilliant Mm -hmm. and i just couldn't stop thinking about the power of both the game and the virtual reality episodes in the context of how it can teach people to learn but the flip side is that it can be dystopian as well, right? In other words, it could be completely negative Completely, people do it. And that's the thing that scares oh, me. Yeah. But, again, but again, that's why we do what we do and that's why we work as hard as we do to make sure that the media that we produce, just like what you were doing with that music video, right? If you think mm. about you reaching 70,000 people trying to tell people about you know, stopping hate speech against LGBT, you can mm. be darn sure that there are people going the other way, right? Oh, completely. It's so bad. true. And that's exactly the same as in video games, because it, it can be very, very dangerous. But um, if done the right way, I think it's so good because, you know, these I yeah, I, I read a paper for my essay, which I wrote on video games is about kind of how, you know, having context and putting these things into video games helps actually kids learn rather yeah. than a pencil and paper test, you know, putting these um if even if I think they tested it on like a programming kind of course, actually, and they actually put things into context. And instead of kind of like circles, squares and triangles, they were, you know, birds or, you know, in this really specific story context. And if you are immersed in that context, it helps you kind of learn better rather than just, you know, two plus two is four, in my opinion. But I guess we'll see. Yeah, it looks like you've got a lot of really interesting stuff to look forward to in the rest of your courses, no? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, even this term, um, we're going to be looking at a like YouTube channels and how to um, kind of maximize your you know capacity on that. Um, I'm also taking a course in contemporary Chinese cinema. Yeah, which I saw that. It's actually really exciting. Because um, there's so much in China nowadays, even when with social media, you know, obviously all of the main platforms are, you know, um, blocked within China. So how do you get in there as a company outside of China wanting to get your product in there? How do you boost it? You've got to know how to use all of these different social media, WeChat, you know, Weibo and all of these type of things. So, you know, China's an interesting one as well. It is, and the tools that they use, the way they use the internet and the way they use the chat mechanisms and also just the general platforms is very different than the way they're used in the West. And I don't think, and I think you'll agree with this, but I don't think you can attach the things that you already know about 
the platforms that we use in the West to how they're using them in China. Yeah, it's completely different. You've got to have a completely different approach. The way they utilize social media is completely different. And it's going to be important because it's such a growing economy, isn't it? So Yeah, very much so. Look, the last thing I'll say to you before I let you go, because I've taken up way too much of your time, is that I think you're going to graduate into a world where the ability to build your own media company and to build media that has impact, even just based on the stuff that you know already, but after two more years of studying and learning and experiencing, right, and building things, you're going to graduate into a world where building a media company is not just going to be way easier than it's ever been in the past, but more important than it's ever been in the past because we need people that understand that media can have positive impact as opposed to just negative impact. That's why I do what I do. That's right. Yeah, and I think it's important to start Which building is amazing. Yeah. Yes, it's so true because it's and the media can have such a negative connotation, especially nowadays. Mm. And that, you yeah. know, it's up to people that kind of are aware of that to change it. Yeah, I don't think people really understood how powerful it was. I mean, sure, there's been propaganda forever, but it's never been easy and inexpensive for people like you to build their own media company from scratch. But today, you can do that, and that's awesome, actually. Yeah. It is. It's amazing. There's so much power, actually. And, you know, you've got to use it the right way. Absolutely. Look, that's a great way to end, actually. At least it's ending on a positive yeah. note as opposed to a dystopian note, which is what I was doing before. <laughs> Lila, I really want to thank you for doing this. I feel like I could have spoken for another hour, but I don't want to take up no, too much more. No, thank you so time. much for inviting me. Thank you. You, you were awesome.